Starting high school might be a nervous time. It might be an exciting time uh, for our Year 7 students. Big adventure awaits. Uh, for me, I remember big questions. Two big questions. Will I get pinned? <laughs> or worse, might I get my head flushed down the toilet? There's every chance. Um, but it's not all bad, of course, high school. There are great days as well. I want to share with you one particularly bad day, if that's all right. Uh, when I was in Year 7, uh, it was a day of nakedness, shame and humiliation. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Uh, the day began with these big Year 12 students. I'm in Year 7. They're in Year 12 and they're all calling me Alvin. Alvin. Why Alvin? Well, Alvin at the time uh, was a TV character from the 1970s. Uh, Alvin was renowned for running the streets unclad, naked. Uh, and if you've not heard of him, that's a thoroughly good uh, thing because it was a TV show that was super rude, super lewd. Uh, and one thing was for sure, Modest Adam in Year 7 did not want to be associated with Alvin from TV. Not in any way. But the Year 12 boys decided that he was me. Uh, and that was distressing. Why? Why did they decide that? Because my sister, she was in Year 12. And the night before, uh, she busted me with her bath towel. Family of seven bath towels were at a premium. And she uh, busted me with her bath towel in the hallway. And so she promptly removed said bath towel. Yep. I tried to run the gauntlet from the bathroom to the bedroom. It was only like five steps, not even but I didn't make it. I failed miserably. She was there waiting and uh, I failed. I had, f I had four sisters who at the time thought it was hilarious. Uh, the year 12 students, they thought it was hilarious. Uh, and I can look back on it now and smile. It's all right. The trauma is over. Uh, but at the time, nakedness, shame, humiliation, not just at home, but in high school for the day. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because I want you to feel the sense of, it's just a little taste of what Israel, uh, they were the subject of nakedness, shame and humiliation, but way worse, of course, entire nation. Uh, this setting is the time after Israel's kings. It's the time after Assyria, after Babylon, if you know how those things went. It's the time after Jerusalem is obliterated. Yeah, that's right. Destroyed, razed to the ground. Chronologically, Nehemiah uh, is, uh, it's, it's towards the end of the Old Testament period, chronologically. Even though that's not where you find it in your Bible. You find it before the wisdom literature. Uh, God has vomited Israel out of the land. God, he's left the building. He's left the temple. And Persia, the nation of Persia, now rules. Uh, in Jeremiah 9 verse 11, it's written, The Lord said, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will lay waste the towns of Judah so that no one can live there. 
And uh, can I say God delivered in spades? A haunt of jackals is the mark of great shame and disgrace. It paints a picture of a land that is empty and desolate. It's a wasteland. And Jerusalem is that wasteland. It's desolate. And this is the background to the text. I know it's so happy, isn't it? So cheerful. But if you have your Bible open, I hope you do. Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, uh, while I was in the citadel of Susa, we've talked all about that already, Hananiah, uh, Hananiah one of my brothers, a, kinman, a kinsman, um, a, a relative, a cousin, um, came from Judah, that's like a thousand, 1,300 k's away, with some of the men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Uh, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, uh, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And so when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Flick over to chapter 2, verse 13. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well. So he's turned up. And the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Can you feel the sad tone here? The homeland is charred. It's broken. It's laid bare. It is a place of disgrace and shame and humiliation and ruin. But look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come... Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And that's Nehemiah. You can go and have a cup of tea now. Uh, if That's the trajectory of the book, really. Um, so then we ask, well, why does this matter, Adam? Why, why does this matter? Here's, here's reason number one why it matters. This matters because the old in the Old Testament, Jerusalem represents the heart of God's kingdom. And Psalm 122, if you read that, we're reminded of that. It's the house of the Lord. It's his dwelling. It's where he rules, Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is bigger than Tokyo. It's bigger than London or Paris or Sydney. It's a slice of heaven on earth. And so you can't leave a city that declares God's name. You can't leave a city that declares his rule. You can't leave a city that is about his place, his presence, his praise, his glory here on earth. You cannot leave that place. You cannot leave that city as a haunt for jackals. Little wonder, chapter 1, verse 4. What did that say again? When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. 
So it matters. Greatly. Why else does it matter? Well, firstly, because it's about God's kingdom. I said that. The second reason is because it's about God's promises. How is this about God's promises? Well, pick it up at verse 5. Look at the way Nehemiah prays. Remember, as he prays, Jerusalem is in ruins. God's people are scattered. They've, they're seemingly abandoned. And Nehemiah prays. Look at verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And on he goes. Uh, as he talks about the covenant of love, we go, oh yeah, did Israel keep that covenant of love? Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you and uh, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Verse 7, we have acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws you gave to your servant Moses. So, he totally owns it. He doesn't shake his fist at God and say, uh, how dare you? God, this is so wrong and it's not fair. Uh, here he's saying it's totally fair. Uh, he doesn't ask why. He knows why. He knows the covenant. He knows that Israel has broken the covenant. And he knows that all of this is Israel's doing, that they are responsible, that they got what was promised. They got what said, they got what God said was coming. And so Jerusalem's destruction is not a stain on God's faithfulness in any way. Rather, uh, it happened because it happened. It is exactly what God promised. It's actually a testimony to God's faithfulness. It's not a stain uh, on his faithfulness in any way. It actually upholds it. And so God's promises anchor Nehemiah's prayer. Look at verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Uh, there it is. See, when things go pear-shaped, the place to run to is God's covenant of love. And so what is Nehemiah asking for? Well, let's hear it again. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. That's the covenant saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. The man is the king. He needs his permission. And so Nehemiah clearly asks, asks for success before the king, but there is a bigger picture. And the bigger picture 
is, dear God, please keep being faithful to your promises. Keep being faithful to your promises. Please be faithful to the redemptive plan. Uh, we see that expressed here by Nehemiah. God's plan always to redeem his people. God's plan that cares about God's holy name. That's the prayer. Because God's name has been stained too through the conduct of Israel, here is a big kingdom prayer that cares about God's reputation amongst the nations. It's a kingdom prayer grounded in promise and grounded in scripture. Oh, to pray like this. Oh, to pray like this. I mean, can we see it? Death and destruction are before his eyes and the place he turns the place he turns to is God's covenant of love. That God is a good God all the time. All the time. And so do we see how Christian suffering, the suffering of God's people, can we see here how it's redemptive? It's a bit like recycling aluminium cans. Uh, when I was growing up, it wasn't uncommon to see people walking the streets collecting cans, putting them in big hessian bags, and they would flatten them out, they would crush them and take them to the redemption centre. The redemption centre in the hope that someone was going to make something useful out of them, yep, as they're recycled, uh, but also get something for them. Rubbish becomes valuable. You can do that. Do the same thing with cars, uh, cars and computer parts. Drop them off at a wreckers, so to speak, knowing that an expert will take away the gold gems and the rare parts and redeem them. Christian suffering is kind. Of, it's kind of like that. Um, suffering, suffering can be recycled as a contribution to an enriched, redeemed Christian life. Uh, pain can give way to protest, that's true, but it can also be redeemed. I think about the lives of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, or Corrie ten Boom, or William Tyndale, or Hudson Taylor, or uh, Perpetua from the early church, all suffered for the cause on account of the kingdom. They suffered for the gospel at great cost. And so as we think about that, as we think about what Nehemiah faces, what he's prepared to do for the kingdom of God, then we go, well, can I add my name as well? Can you add your name? Paul wrote to uh, the Roman church in chapter 5 of Romans. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope hope doesn't disappoint because god has poured out his love into our hearts by the holy spirit and then there is jesus himself laying down his life suffering experiencing the agony of pain and death forsaken by god for the sake of others and he does that in order that we would be redeemed and if this is true is there anything irredeemable that can happen to us i mean our natural instinct is to run from suffering but sometimes it finds us too often we would never choose it 
Uh, and of course, Jesus, he got no exemption from the tragedies of, of evil and suffering, and his followers do not either. Why do we think that's the case? Jesus says, take up your cross, follow me for a good reason. And so the path of redemption is not the path that takes us around pain, that bypasses pain and suffering. The path of redemption does not avoid that. If we understand the cross, the path of redemption takes us right through the middle of all the muck and of all the mire of the shadows of this life. And like Nehemiah, it has us running to our God of love, our good God, our covenant God who keeps his promises. So is Nehemiah successful? There's a great question. Read the book. Chapter 3 yeah, when you get to chapter 3, notice it reads like a parish secretary's report to an AGM. We did this, we did this, we did this. Names, names, names. Next week, we'll talk a bit more about that and the opposition that arises from Nehemiah's dreams. But we must also ask, well, what do we do with this book? What are we going to do with it? In the past, it's been used as a Christian, as a manual for leadership for Christians for Christians and pastors and all that. But if that's the case, well, what do the rest of us do who aren't pastors? How does it speak to the rest of us? If it's just a manual for leadership? I mean, really? In the past, Nehemiah has also been used by ministers and parish councils, elders who want the scriptures to help justify the next building project or the funding thereof. Um, you know, it's, it's not what the book's about. And if you think that, I think you're missing the point. You're missing out, actually. Uh, Nehemiah is about God's kingdom. Got to see that. And Nehemiah's hope is that God's kingdom would be restored. Uh, and it's a hope that's anchored in the promises of God. God promised. Nehemiah is about the hope of God's kingdom being re-established, but it's only possible because God keeps his promises. And so has he. Today, has God kept his promises? And the answer is, of course he has. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, reminds us that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That's it. And so this is what makes Jesus so important. In the Old Testament, the temple is there. Jerusalem is there. God meets people there. He forgives people there. Jerusalem's not just another city. We've said that. But then Jesus says in chapter 2, verse 19 of John's Gospel, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three. But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body, was him. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21 describes Jesus as our temple that we can be joined into, built into as bricks and mortar and all that kind of stuff. Or Revelation chapter 1, 21, verse, uh, verses 1 to 4. Let me look it up. Revelation 21, you can look it up too if you've got your Bible there. Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem, see it? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I looked, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he's going to dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death, no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And as you see verse 4, cast your eye across to verse 22 of the same chapter, Revelation 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There it is. There it is. Do you see it? Do you see Jesus come along and he does everything the temple was supposed to do? That Jesus is now the place where we come to God and where we meet God. Jesus is now the place where we fellowship with God. He's the place through whom we receive forgiveness. He's God with us. He's significant. He's what we need. When Jesus came, we heard uh, in our series, didn't we, that Jesus brought and established the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God came near. And we got a glimpse of it with the healings and the miracles. And Jesus has secured his kingdom. He's guaranteed it through his suffering, through his death on the cross for us, for our sins. He has brought in the true kingdom, Israel, we're waiting for and now it's not just for Israel it's for all nations we can participate in the kingdom of God and so let me say this very clearly so now the Jerusalem we wait for is not one of bricks and mortar built out near Palestine the Jerusalem we wait for is the new one the heavenly one the one we know Jesus brings himself Nehemiah, he knew humiliation, but he knew the promises of God. And today, all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. In him we are redeemed. In him God's kingdom is established. And now we are invited to be part of that kingdom, to play our role in building God's kingdom as his family members. And how are we to do it? <laughs> How are we to do it? Well, are your hopes and prayers anchored in the assurances we have in Jesus, the promises of God that are yes in him? How's your 2021 shaping up so far? I know it's nearly the middle of February already. Where's it gone? But are you trusting Jesus? Are you listening to him and obeying him? And are you getting to know him through the scriptures? Are you growing in Christ as Christ's kingdom person? here in the community that you live, wherever that is, could be anywhere. Are you like many of the names that we saw in chapter 3, contributing to the building of God's kingdom, not with bricks and mortar, but with relationships? You read chapter 3, it's all about relationships, isn't it? People getting their hands dirty, being involved in, in rebuilding, in ministry. Is Christ showing you how to love him, love God, love your neighbour. It means as a church, when we make decisions about how we spend our time and money and energy, our question has to be, how does this serve the kingdom of God? Our ministry here, your ministry. How will this build relationships in our community 
so that the light and love of Christ might shine brightly from this church family, your church family, that others might hear and be saved too. And it means that when suffering does swing by on account of that, because of the cross, we know there's, a, there's no situation that is irredeemable, that cannot be converted and used for the glory of God. And that's all to his thanks and praise.